welcome to Zero Knowledge. I'm your host, Anna Rose. In this podcast, we will be exploring the latest in zero knowledge research and the decentralized web, as well as new paradigms that promise to change the way we interact and transact online. This week, I chat with Christy Lee Minahan, previously of Core Scientific, Genesis Mining, and the co-author of the ProgPow EIP. She now works on Symbol Protocol. We discuss her road to crypto mining, mining on Ethereum, and how the hardware industry around this developed, ProgPow or EIP 1057, and the subsequent controversy that it generated in the Ethereum community, the challenges of off-chain governance, signaling, and more. But before we start in, I want to let you know about the upcoming ZK Jobs Fair. It's happening on July 29th. We will be hosting some of the top ZK projects who are looking to build out their teams and hire. Most of the jobs will be technical, focused on software, engineering, and cryptography roles, but there are usually some other positions as well. So if you're looking to work in blockchain and the ZK space, this will be a great way to meet the teams and get to know them as you apply. We host this on gather.town, which is an awesome video game style interactive online space. It's a lot of fun. This will be our third edition. If you're interested and you want to come check it out, uh, I've added the sign up link in the show notes. In the meantime, you can also check out the ZK Jobs Board, which is a list of open positions in the ZK community. As a last related bit of housekeeping, the ZK Validator is actually hiring right now. ZK Validator is the other project that I spend my time on these days. We are currently looking to fill a DevOps position. So if you have the skill set and want to start working with us exploring new POS and L2 blockchain networks, do get in touch. So I've added the link to the job fair, to the job board, and to this particular job at the ZK Validator in the show notes. I also want to thank this week's sponsor, EY Blockchain. EY is one of the founding members of the Baseline Protocol Group, which is an industry-wide open-source initiative to build privacy tools and scalability technology that make it easy and secure for enterprises to do business with each other on the public Ethereum blockchain. Find out more about it at blockchain.ey.com or visit the Baseline Protocol site at baseline-protocol.org. So thank you again, EY Blockchain. Now here is my interview with Christy Lee Minahan. This week, I'm here with Christy Lee Minahan, known on Twitter as Oh God, a Girl, a longstanding participant in many crypto ecosystems. I want to say welcome, Christy. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. And I think in today's episode, the idea is to explore your background. We're going to talk a lot about mining. We're going to talk about ProgPow, maybe like how that started and where it's at now. We're also going to learn about what you're working on today. So I'm very excited to jump into all of these topics with you. Before we start in though, this is the first time we're meeting. So I really want to hear like, where did you get your start in this space and what led you to working as a miner? Oh, geez. Uh, that is quite a story. You know, I say that I officially got started in, in 2010. So we all have that moment where we either brought Bitcoin or we heard about Bitcoin and decided to mine a little bit. We all have that exact moment where we got captivated. And for me, I had a few chat groups I hang around in and a few friends had told me about Bitcoin and had dropped the white paper. And I was too young and too uneducated at the time to understand what any of that meant. But all my friends were getting super excited. So I naturally got super excited as well. 
And it wasn't until 2010 when the first uh, initial release had been dropped that I actually started tinkering. And my friend group at the time made a huge game out of it. We were all competing for the highest hash rate. Hash rate to me was almost like a bit of a video game high score. And in the early days when there wasn't a lot to do, you started optimizing and hand tuning the memory on your laptop or the CPU and overclocking it to get a higher score. It was incredibly addictive. And there's something, I don't know quite how to express it, but there's something, it's a bit like bragging rights when you get to take a screenshot of your current performance, your current hash rate, throw it into a chat group and everyone's like, oh my God, how did you do that? Mm. It strokes a little bit of your ego, but it's also incredibly addictive in the same way that you'll you'll take screen caps of like a fantastic pentakill on League or your high score in some other video game and just share it on the internet. It's bragging rights. And that was my addiction point. That was how I got hooked in crypto. It wasn't the tech. It wasn't the economics. I was way too young for any of that. It was all around the high score of hash rate. Were your friends at the time gamers? Was it like a group more of yes. gamer types? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sounds a little bit not, like that. <laughs> not even that. Um, the the friend group, we were we were all security enthusiasts, is what I would ah. call us. There's a lot of overlap between the the cyberpunk communities and the security communities and the video game communities. And it's something that you naturally do online to bond with people. There's not a lot of ways where you can build relationships with online communities, like really close relationships and spend time together outside of chatting. You can sometimes work on projects together, but games are just a natural thing that a lot of us default into. So, you know, it was a it was a diverse group and we had started competing until one day my best friend at the time drops a uh, screenshot And he's got double the performance of what any of us have been able to achieve. And we're sitting here, the rest of us are sitting here trying to think, okay, how is this possible? Like, this isn't at all possible. We've all maxed out our machines. What's going on? Turns out he's rewritten part of the client for performance. And he won't tell us what he's done. He (gasps) won't tell us how he's achieved it. He won't share. And he has the hide to say, I'll give it to you for $200. (laughs) <laughs> and at that moment, I got so outraged, so angry, just so furious that I was like, you know what? I'm not going to pay for this. I'm going to teach myself how to do what he's done just to go and one-up him. And so that <laughs> set me on a three-month rabbit hole of teaching myself everything there was to know about C and becoming incredibly obsessed with C programming, everything there is to know about bitwise optimizations and hand optimizing for dedicated processors and how you target x86 architecture and just staying in a little box and working on this until finally I had a optimized Bitcoin client that was 2% better than his. And that was all I needed. And that was that... <laughs> The whole experience was so addictive that it's what I've carried on with me for close to 11 years now as a career. Wow. And then finally, in the uh, tail end of 2013, I actually got recruited to do the Golden Code, uh, which is like the optimized C code for an ASIC. And that kicked off my entire career in learning about uh, floor planning and ASIC and hardware development. 
And that was incredibly, uh, incredibly addictive. So I had that nice little progression path of software, CPU, GPU, FPGA, until finally I hit the hardware side of things. The ASICs. When you talk about this golden code, was this optimizing for existing ASICs or was there like actual hardware changes being implemented through something like this? Yeah. So your golden code is basically your algorithm optimized in assembly. So it's got all of the inefficiencies stripped out of it until it is the most performant um, iteration of an algorithm. So in the case of Bitcoin, it's your SHA-256 algorithm with all of your uh, rolls and unrolls baked into there um, and any inefficiencies removed. And then for at hash, you know, your golden code is, is separate, so on and so forth. That becomes the basis for the actual hardware design. And from that, you go into the um, architecture and floor planning stage where you now break that down into actually circuits, which is really, really cool. And so golden code, it's, it's kind of a, the hand optimized code you use to build a crypto ASIC, it is what sets you up for either success or failure. And in those early days when everyone was neck and neck competing, and there were still a lot of secrets to be uncovered, golden code was incredibly valuable. So nowadays, however, everyone basically has the same golden code. SHA-2560 has been studied enough. There's enough reports out there. There is enough optimizations out there that everyone has the same floor to compete with. And now all of the optimizations are actually just at the silicon level. So now it's at your process level where you're now um, tweaking and tuning the five nanometer process and getting your simulations right and then taping out to your multi-project wafer and optimizing, hand optimizing and refining there. It's more a physical optimization versus a software optimization like it was originally. Cool. What you're talking about here, were you still, was this still very freelance, kind of like you're contributing, but in your own capacity? Or had you already joined a company professionally? No, uh, I actually did not join a, I, I was entirely freelance. And in fact, I was entirely anonymous. Um, so I had a male identity I used online. I mean, I didn't outright claim it was male, just people assumed that it was male. And so I just ran with it. Um, mm. And it wasn't up until 2015 that I actually joined a company full time, which was Genesis Mining. And I decided to, you know, just be myself, which was a shock to a lot of people who had thought, nope, this is definitely a dude uh, that that uh, <laughs> this is definitely a dude. There's no way. And along with that came the moniker of Oh God, a girl, because I was like, you know what, if everyone's so shocked about my gender, I might as well just own it and throw it out there. So it's not a shock to anyone else. Did you get a little bit of a kick out of that? I, I did. I, I did. would. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> I like being underestimated and then <laughs> keep showing them, or in your case, actually like, yeah, I guess it was more like masked identity and then reveal. Very cool. I think that the US talks a lot about gender discrimination, but I feel it's not highlighted as much in other parts of the world. It definitely was prevalent in the early 2000s. And so I got a huge kick out of that because um, to me, it, it didn't really matter what gender I was. How does, that, how does that have any sway? How does that have any influence on the skills I have as an individual? And in a way, you proved that. Yeah. You removed that from the equation and were able to compete properly. Therefore, you disproved that there was actually a need for this like gender gendered view. Yeah. Did not expect to 
dive into uh, gender politics in this uh, discussion. But <laughs> Well, actually, let's bring it back to your story. I want to talk. So the first job that you had, what was it? It was Genesis Mining? It was. I, uh, I originally joined as a cryptographic engineer, which meant I was responsible for optimizing the, uh, doing a lot of things actually, mostly hand optimizing a lot of their uh, mining infrastructure. So a lot of their mining software, um, which at the time was predominantly Ethereum and Zcash and Monero. And then I think three, three weeks into the job, my boss rang me and he was like, hey, you know hardware, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, great. Uh, we've got something we want you to look at in China. So I was on a plane uh, to China to go and see this vendor. Um, and we'd been trying to build a evolution to our current GPU rigs. So Genesis Mining, for those who aren't aware, is a cloud mining provider. And so cloud mining is essentially where you can purchase a hash rate contract, which gives you access to so much hash rate over a period of a year. And from that, you know, you pay up front. So, you know, you pay, say, $300, and now you get 300 giga hash worth of hash rate for the rest of that year. Um, so it's almost like a extended cloud computing contract. It's a pretty uh, gray area because there's still a lot of uh, laws being built up around this on whether or not it's a security um, or not. But nevertheless, it was an incredibly big business, uh, I would say pre-2017. And it was a major way where people actually got exposed to mining. So not everyone had the capabilities nor access to the capital, nor even the knowledge of how to buy a ASIC or a GPU, mm. but everyone could go to Genesis Mining and purchase a hash rate contract. Um, and so in order to be the most efficient in that business, you have to ensure that number one, you have the latest and greatest software that is hand optimized that gives you an advantage over the competition, but also ensures that every unit of energy you're expending is giving you an equivalent uh, hash rate or like a optimized hash rate output. So ensuring that you're better than your competition in that regard. The second thing, however, is uh, optimizing for density. So you want to ensure that you have as many GPU cards as possible in one rig or as many ASICs as possible in one kind of physical footprint. So optimizing for density is pretty important. And so GM had uh, been experimenting with a new design and there were plenty of vendors in China um, that were also looking into this problem. And that kick-started my two, two-and-a-half-year stay in China. And it was, it was an experience. I lived and worked in the middle of uh, Fuzhou, Jiangxi, and we built close to 850 megawatts worth of power infrastructure. And when I finally left China, we had close to... 370 megawatts of that running GPU, uh, GPU infrastructure running. And that that's an experience like living in China during 2015 to 2017. That is that is quite an experience. So the, those numbers don't, I don't know what that means exactly. But could you like, do you would you be able to put that in like node numbers or something that maybe would help me to better understand that size? Yeah, not not quite node numbers. So megawatt is it, it, it all depends on what GPUs you're using. But 370 megawatts was close to 
oh, this is going to be a scary number for people. Um, that was close to about eight to nine percent of the Ethereum hash rate at the time, probably more. <laughs> um, and then we we progressively added to it. At one point, you know, we were close to seventeen to twenty percent of the hash rate before the rest of the market kicked kicked in. And it was close. It was a lot of GPUs, uh, a lot of GPUs. But that, you know, that was Genesis Mining's business. They didn't uh, necessarily mine for themselves. They threw up this infrastructure and then people would purchase hash rate rental contracts. And those, then that hardware would be mining for the individual. This is sort of a random question, but like, can you run multiple nodes on a single GPU at the same time? Is that usually what is happening or is it sort of like per GPU you tend to like focus? I know I'm, f- I'm probably focused too much on the node client thing, but I, that's always how I think about this. Yeah, maybe help me understand how that actually connects. Of course. So imagine you have eight GPUs in a rig. And this is essentially just hash rate. You know, it's a hashing machine. And all it does is it gets work packets from a pool and then sends those work packets to the pool. And what we think of as nodes don't really exist in mining per se. We do have the concept of mining nodes, which is an individual miner. So think of that Mm -hmm. like that eight GPU box. Is still an individual that that could just be like one node in a way. Like you'd have one Correct. node running at some point, but it's the hash rate of all eight. Kind of, uh, because there's <laughs> not really the concept of nodes. So what we think of in Ethereum, right? With with nodes, we think of a full full client. So a node holds all state of all smart contracts. You don't actually have that in mining. It's not required to participate. All you need to have is mining software which essentially uh, gets work packets and then sends work packets back to the pool. And all it's doing is crunching through numbers, essentially. That's its whole job. And so all of the consolidation into blocks, that actually happens at the pool level, which is where the nodes are uh, ran and maintained Mm. up at that level. And so in the case of something like cloud mining infrastructure, it's not quite that everyone has an individual node that they maintain. Um, it's just that everyone has a certain amount of computing power that's allocated to them, and then they get the rewards for that computing power. And the pools actually maintain the nodes. Now, we we do maintain nodes as farms in order to make sure that our transactions and our blocks are actually picked up. It's more important if you are a large percent of the network, if you are just an individual yourself and running you know, a machine at home in the US, chances are your transaction is probably going to be picked up quite close. But you only need about one node per 1200 rigs. Whoa. So holy shit. Yeah, <laughs> okay, it, you're right. It, you don't count in <laughs> nodes. I get it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, you only really need one per facility. So a good rule of thumb is you have one per physical data center facility. And that just, you know, helps propagate your transactions and communicate with the network. That's about it. If you're running your own pool, that's an entirely different setup. And then you do need to maintain quite a few nodes in diverse regions. But for Mm -hmm. the average miner, no, all they're focusing on is the hardware itself. And this is because nodes don't provide any sort of incentive to running. Miners are very cost sensitive. That means that we try and optimize for the lowest cost possible to squeeze out the most profit. And so in a lot of cases, running a node, it's goodwill. It's just something that you do for the health or the benefit of the network. But a miner isn't necessarily incentivized to run a large collection of nodes. 
Now, that being said, many miners and many pools do run uh, lots of nodes for the benefit of the network because they do deeply care about Ethereum or about Bitcoin. But definitely, you know, it feels like we should have put some sort of incentive for running and maintaining a node in there. And that was the original design ethos, right, of the first crypto miners. Your wallet, your node, and your miner was all coupled into one. And we kind of killed all of that off in, I think, about 2012 when we started having light clients and independent wallets and then independent miners. Got it. That project that you're talking about where you went to China, was that an Ethereum-focused project? Like that specific mining thing, that factory that you just described, was that mostly Ethereum? I know you mentioned it was Ethereum Zcash and Monero generally, but yeah, what were you working on exactly? Or is it shared between all these? It's it's shared between all coins. It's uh, It's whatever clients have purchased in terms of hash rate contracts. And it's distributed over a wide variety of coins. Normally, you know, cloud mining facilities would predominantly maintain a large percent in Ethereum, uh, so in at hash, and then they do a percent in Zek and a percent in Monero, which were the hot coins to mine at the time, and then a small percent in uh, alternative currencies. But it was whatever was you know most profitable at the time and where the demand was. In uh, GM's case, yes, it was almost purely Ethereum. And yeah, it was it was a very fun time to be a miner back then. You know, in 20, 2016 and 2017, we started having all of the memory shortages and the chip shortages. And that can be directly attributed to the huge crypto boom that was happening, especially in 2017. It was insane that memory was actually being purchased from the gray market by some of the uh, OEMs in China, just in order to have enough memory to fulfill all of their demand that they had. And miners just flocked to purchasing GPUs straight from OEMs in China versus what had predominantly been done, which was purchasing GPUs in, say, um, on Amazon or in store or in, you know, a mom and pop store. So it was definitely a, a turning point into that kind of industrialization. And part of that was also that um, AMD was starting to get really interested in mining. And you can't blame them. They see, they see these clients that have never showed up on their uh, retail radar before suddenly purchasing 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 GPUs in one stroke. And they're like, what is going on? Are you running a gaming cafe? And you have to sit down and explain to them the process of <laughs> crypto mining. And no, this is this is actually just, you know, we're mining this magical internet money. It's called Ethereum. Here are all the cool things you can do with it. Well, at that time, you couldn't do a lot with Ethereum, but here are all the cool things in the future you could do with it. Um, <laughs> it was a whole new market. And hardware OEMs were completely mesmerized by this. And when we think mining... A lot of people still think Bitcoin, so they still think ASICs. Mm -hmm. And the fact that GPUs at the time could be utilized for crypto mining, it was mesmerizing. So it was a very exciting time. And there was just a lot of innovation that was also happening around this point, spurned by Ethereum mining. Innovation in hardware. So for instance, your actual server design, how could you get the most efficient server with all of the um, high cost components stripped out of it? and something that would allow for optimal density. And so these designs that were pioneered in 2016 and 2017 actually are still utilized today, and they're utilized in markets outside of crypto. 
which I find incredibly, uh, incredibly cool. What was the next phase? So you did Genesis mining and then you also did core scientific. Was this a similar role or similar job or was this a big shift? Core scientific was a bit of a shift for me personally. So Genesis mining was ran and maintained by a bunch of passionate cryptocurrency enthusiasts. But Core Scientific was the complete opposite. You had traditional corporate pedigree. And I met the Core Scientific team when they were called Mineco, when I was actually looking to, um, I was running my own little startup at the time, and I was looking for hosting space. And I came across these guys uh, in my in my search and they were in North Carolina. They called themselves something different. And they were very passionate about the crypto space and Bitcoin mining in particular. But I could tell that they had just started to get into it. And they didn't really know what they were doing quite. But I loved their enthusiasm. And I fell in love, honestly, with the characters and the individuals at the company. And uh, I met Kevin in early 2018. And uh, we had a discussion and it was right after I'd signed a hosting contract actually with Core Scientific with my startup at the time that I was offered an opportunity to be a CTO and come grow Core Scientific. And so Core Scientific specialized in blockchain infrastructure. So specifically in data centers in building, deploying and maintaining data centers, selling out hosting capacity for interested participants and uh, really hyper-focusing on the crypto side of things. And then we also had a AI business, which was specialized in high-performance compute. And that's because there's a lot of overlap in the designs, not necessarily in the thermals, but definitely in the uh, initial physical design of a data center um, between HPC and crypto. Most importantly, that both favor density. Uh, you know, we want to cram as much heat and as much output into a tiny form factor as possible. So we had these two sides of our business and the entire team at Core Scientific was traditional Fortune 50 executives. You know, you had Kevin Turner, former COO of Microsoft and CEO of Citadel Securities. Uh, we had Bill Humes, former CFO of Ingram Micron, uh, one of the largest, uh, largest electronics distributors and components distributors on the planet, among other things. We had Christy Barwick, one of the most fantastic treasurers I've ever had the pleasure of working with from Intellectual Ventures. You just had this absolute rock star team that had come together and said, you know what, we believe in this cryptocurrency thing. We want to come together and build the infrastructure to support it. And it was, uh, it was a big growth in both my personal career getting to learn from that rock star team, but also um, being able to teach them all about, you know, how it actually works in this space. How do you market to cryptocurrency miners? How do you talk to them? You know, the there was still that dynamic between centralized corporations and decentralized autonomous groups that clashed heavily in 2018 and 2019. It's only in 2021 that we've kind of become okay with the industrialization. Of, of crypto and the enterprises coming in in a big way. So it was very interesting. Similar businesses, just different different teams uh, and different approaches to building out infrastructure. 
You also just mentioned a startup that sounds like was in between those two roles. What was that? That Was that just something you did for a shorter period of time? Yeah, that was, I had a small startup that actually started in Ukraine because I was living in Ukraine at the time. From China to Ukraine, I oh, guess? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> or was there some other stops along the there way? There were quite a few stops. There were quite a few stops. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I had been uh, actually recruited to do some CBDC work before CBDC became a buzzword in Ukraine. So I was camped out in Ukraine for uh, a good few months. And uh, during that time, I had wanted to try my hand at actually doing a startup. So formed a startup with two other uh, good friends at the time, one who I met in Ukraine, one who's actually based here in Seattle, and went on to try um, and build a cloud mining company that was run entirely through Ethereum smart contracts. So instead of a business that was, um, you know, selling selling hardware and selling these contracts, it was all entirely run on Ethereum. Everything from the GPU and its uh, its GPUs, actually all hardware, has something called ASIC IDs, which are these unique identifiers that are actually stamped into the silicon, but are also read by your machine and are kind of used as a unique identifier. And so we tied these to smart contracts so that your ASIC ID actually became almost your unique token. And it was uniquely yours as a user. That was your GPU. You could check it, you could modify it. It was yours. And the thing to understand about miners is a lot of us care deeply about like what memory our cards have because different memory gives different performance characteristics or different power characteristics. And we care about what our GPU card looks like and what fans it has and what are the manufacturers of the individual components on the PCB. And so we took all of this, we built tools to scrape all of this data and wrap it up into a smart contract so that miners could pick their perfect GPU card and get it at uh, cost plus, plus a small amount of profit, which contrasts how things are actually sold in the crypto space. And it was fantastic. It was a great business um, early on. And I learned a ton as both, you know, as both a founder and a CEO. And it was really great to build a successful business on, on crypto. But what made you walk away from it? For me, as an individual, and it wasn't a decision I made lightly either, it took me about close to two-ish months to come to terms with this. Getting to learn from industry giants about how to properly build a public company is what was needed to serve the next generation of infrastructure for blockchain. We'd gone through this evolution, right? Wherein up until 2013, it was all scrappy individuals in our homes and then some small businesses. And then 2013 to 2016, that was when you kind of got your semi, semi-professional businesses starting to industrialize but it was all very hush-hush and secret. And this was incredibly true of the cloud mining space. We never talked about how much hash rate we actually owned or operated. Uh, we never talked about machines. It was kept very much under wraps. It was almost dirty in a way. Mm. Then in 2017 and 2018, you had the big ICO boom, which was full of scam artists and charlatans and people who claimed they were, you know, blockchain consultants and blockchain experts. And once the crypto winter kind of hit, all of that got rustled out. Which is kind of nice. It is. It was very nice. Yeah. <laughs> and all that was left was now your professionals. 
And the companies that wanted to be completely transparent, wanted to be out in the open, wanted to, you know, go out there in the space and um, just do good. And so it was a hard choice for me, but it was the right choice to kind of move forward with that. And it taught me a lot of things that I needed to know in order to be successful in my own career. But most importantly, it was the opportunity to get to be part of a big company that for the first time in history was going to go and take a company public and actually build a public company around blockchain infrastructure and basically be like, look, we're, we're here to be a partner to clients with, with no, um, no politics involved, with no bias. We're just here to do what is right for cryptocurrency, what is right for Bitcoin, what is right for Ethereum. And that to me fit perfectly in with my, my moral compass. And I was like, I am, I'm on this train. You're in. Yep. Cool. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you about was a lot, like around that time. So I feel like we've done a great, you know, history of where you started to 2018, 2019, maybe. So I remember on Twitter, and to be honest, I didn't follow this very closely, but there was like a lot of conversation around Prog Pow and later a lot of conversation around EIP 1559. Both, I gotta be honest, like never, I never fully got inside those. And I am curious to hear, maybe you can tell me a little bit about like, what's the origin story for ProgPal? Let's start there. And what were you doing at that oh time? Boy. And I know it's probably a very big topic because that's actually where I remember first seeing you on Twitter. Um, so ProgPal, it's important to understand the context at the time. When the first Ethereum ASICs were leaked, um, there were a lot of discussions on the Ethereum forums as well as on the Ethereum Reddit about do we change the proof of work algorithm. In the white paper, one of the defining characteristics at the time for Ethereum was that this was a proof of work chain that was optimized around GPUs. And it stated that ASICs were a bit of a scourge. They were a plague on a network. And it went into the design reasons and the design rationale for ETHash. And so at hash as an algorithm, which it's the hashing algorithm for Ethereum, was designed to, to target GPUs. And it was designed to be efficient on GPUs. And so there were a lot of proposals coming up about a alternative proof of work algorithm that would either brick the ASICs or make ASICs impossible. And so myself and uh, two other two other friends, we'll call them Def and Else. So we became If Def Else. We're sitting around reading these proposals, and we were realizing that a lot of people had no idea how hardware actually works, and a lot of people don't think about how the hashing algorithm actually translates down into the hardware. Because the easiest way to explain how you make an ASIC, it's actually that you start with GPU and you strip off all of the components that are unnecessary until you're left with the base silicon that you need. And then you go make an ASIC out of that. It's a very explain like I'm five uh, explanation, but it, it helps to kind of visualize. And so in the case of Ethereum, there was 40% of the GPU card that was left idle actually in the hash algorithm. And everyone was going about it the wrong way. And so we decided, well, let's actually just go and contribute something. Like, let's go put up a proposal of how you should do this right and see if they're interested in it. And at the time, uh, I was actually between, I was between uh, my startup and 
an offer for course scientific. So it was kind of in the middle. Okay, got it. And we decided to do that. We actually approached Vlad Zamfir first for a review. And he told us, because we had no idea what we were doing. It's one thing to go and to do something in the Ethereum community, like be a miner in Torhub mm-hmm. forums. It's another to actually go make an EIP. And the rules around that process aren't quite clear, or they weren't clear back then. And so we honestly thought the way that you make proposals is you go pitch them to Vlad and to Vitalik. Because in, you know, in our minds, there's your CEO and CTO right? Um, Even though that is not at all how Ethereum works. Mm -hmm. And Vlad was incredibly patient with us and actually guided us through the appropriate path. He was like, you've got to go create an EIP. Here's how you go do that. You've got to make sure it meets all these requirements. Everyone was incredibly supportive about and and helped guide us around making sure that our ideas were formulated in, in the right framework to be classified as an EIP and uh, help get us to the point where it was actually up for discussion. And so we did that. It was EIP 1057. And it was essentially a very small tweak to at hash that optimized the operations to completely saturate the GPU. And so when we talk about saturation, that means it's trying to utilize as much of the silicon of a GPU as possible in order to uh, prevent someone from coming along and actually making an ASIC. And while you can strip components of a GPU away, you're also competing with the cost basis of a GPU. And you're trying to say that you can get those components far cheaper than a company like AMD or NVIDIA can who have global supply chains. So you're doing one part kind of protocol design, one part hardware design, but you're also tapping into the economics of the supply chain around GPUs and using all of that to your advantage to create a highly optimized proof of work algorithm still at hash based. The change is actually minor. It's five very small changes. And the entirety of ProgPow, it's actually only 37 lines of code, maybe 42 now. So it's very, very small. It went largely ignored up until DevCon 4, when someone had reached out, I forget who now, and said that, hey, Christy, there's been a lot of discussion about ProgPow. Um, And a lot of the community is really excited and it would be great if you would come and present it at DevCon. And so I'd I'd taken my role at Core Scientific and I was like, well, I have to go tell my boss about this. So I explained it all to to my boss, uh, my CEO, KT, and uh, he was really supportive. And he's like, go on, go do it. So I went to Prague and we did our presentation, which you know, is now on YouTube and everyone watches it and likes to take screen caps and make memes out of it. And it was meant to just be a quick primer over the changes that we'd done to Hash and why we had designed them, as well as the behaviors and incentives that certain hardware types create. So it's really important to understand that when you're designing a consensus algorithm, you need to be thinking about how all of the users in your system are going to engage with this consensus algorithm and about the kind of behaviors and incentives that are created. And the one thing we don't think of as protocol designers is we don't think about hardware, mostly because that is a big gap in most designers' uh, understandings and knowledge. How does hardware work? How do the supply chains work? How does that entire space work? And so ASICs have a unfortunate history um, up until probably 2020 
of causing centralized forces. It's important to understand context again. So I'll reiterate that it's about the time period. So up until 2020, most large ASIC purchases were done under the table. You went directly to the uh, company and you were able to purchase the entire supply for yourself. And you would leave none to the smaller operators or the smaller miners. It was a first come, first serve kind of thing. And it was where money talked. So you could pay you know, a premium to completely lock out your competition. Manufacturers didn't really have restrictions or regulations like they do in the traditional space. So as a vendor, I cannot come in and just buy out all of Intel's supply of CPUs, no matter how much I pay, because they actually have contracts and obligations to other vendors, retail stores and other clients and other parts of the world. So I can't just use money and throw my money around and centralize that situation. Whereas in the ASIC space, you easily can. In crypto, you can. Um, So that was a big issue. And then any time that ASICs had felt threatened, historically, uh, operators of ASICs would 51% attack a chain. And so we have a huge history of altcoins suffering 51% attacks the moment that there was even a discussion of the proof-of-work algorithm changing. So Operators of ASICs at that time and what the evidence had shown us were incentivized to, number one, protect their investments, number two, incentivized to stay as small and as silent as possible, and number three, were incentivized to do whatever would make them the most profit, um, which was keep at hash running at the expense of the network. And there was a lot of interest and excitement. And it wasn't until I think the community started rallying for it to actually be adopted when the next generation of ASICs had been announced and released, which was um, E3 started to be distributed uh, at large, that the community started to lobby for ProPal. And so then we went through that whole process of getting it, uh, going through the different stages, getting it accepted and championing it. This is some great background into like why it existed and like who who the groups were that championed it, but who was against it? Who was the group? How would you define the group that that had issue with it? So amusingly, at the start, for about a year, no one was against it. And part of that was because a lot of people did not have an understanding of why ethash, the hashing algorithm, was designed in the way it was. Mm. So it was hard for people to form unbiased decisions around ProgPal and be able to have a uh, logical, logical debate about it. The second reason was it didn't really affect DAP developers or anyone except miners. So the mining community was the only one who cared about it. And the GPU miners cared quite a bit about having this and getting ASICs off the network. And uh, so did some of the Ethereum core team uh, per the white papers, you know, the white papers reasoning and per the initial ask for community contributions to get a proof of work change. What happened was an ASIC company at the time called Lindsay Mining started what I will say is one of the best lobbying campaigns I've ever experienced to try and get this EIP shut down. And they were quite voracious in their efforts. Mm. And that caused a lot of chaos. And it did a few things. It taught the Ethereum community about how we need better tools in order to actually get real sentiment because the tools we had at the time could easily be civil attacked. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. You, your only tools were Reddit posts, which it's really easy to spin up a Reddit, a Reddit account or a few thousand news articles. It's really easy to buy a news article. You know, uh, Twitter, it's really easy to, you know, make fake accounts on Twitter. Those aren't good tools for sentiment collection. And then you think about, well, hang on, what if we have voting through blocks, through the extra data field? And so we actually did a vote for ProgPal, yes, no, um, with blocks, and an overwhelming majority of the community voted yes. But then you've got to think about the DAP users who don't actually mine. How do they vote and how do they mm-hmm. contribute? So now we've left a part of our ecosystem and our community completely void. What about the people that are still holders of Ethereum but aren't technical enough to either engage in DApps yet because the UX hasn't been built up or people that are you know, still participants of the network and contributing in their own special way but don't hold a lot of Ether? How do you get their sentiment and their views? Mm-hmm. And so a few things happened at the time. There was the formation of the Ethereum cat herders, which helped actually get a lot of this sentiment into some digestible format. And there was people that built out other kinds of governance and sentiment tools to help collect all this sentiment. And ProPower ended up becoming a topic on every single bloody ACD call that I think it just burnt everyone out. Not enough people cared except for the mining community. And the mining community felt they weren't heard. They kept voicing, they kept trying to almost lobby for this. Hmm. But a lot of miners aren't able to articulate why ASICs are bad beyond ASICs are bad. And that's okay. Not everyone has the best communication skills. And you had, at, at the end of it, what ended up happening is all of these groups were pointing fingers at each other saying, you're only saying this to protect your profits. Miners were saying, well, you're only saying this because you don't care about us. We're also participants in the network. It was politics, awful, awful politics. I have followed a few of the very, very open governance. I don't want want to say processes because they're sort of like events, let's say, governance events or attempts to sway governance in one direction or another. And it's very interesting because there does seem to be this attitude of like, in order to win, you have to convince the community. But if you try to convince the community you're kind of like a scammer or shill. We don't like to be convinced. And so some people will say present very rational arguments and then people can make a decision. You do that and then maybe like the Redditors can't, they're not paying that much attention to it and they can still manage to sway or scare some of the actual decision makers. And I think we've seen that over the years. I, I, I believe years ago, I did an episode actually like looking at governance from various different perspectives in Ethereum at the time to try to understand like, how could this be better? What's needed? And I think a lot of times there was this drive for a signaling tool. I actually worked on a signaling tool like a while ago, a little bit for a short amount of time, but that also got squashed. <laughs> like the signaling tool itself became politicized in a way. Bingo. So that was that was a very, I mean, I was really just helping like on the side. So I, I wasn't in the thick of it, but what I could even see was like, wow, so everyone is saying you need signaling. And then when somebody tries to build signaling, there's this this feeling like the signaling is going to be corrupt somehow, even before it exists. And doesn't matter how open you are to feedback. And that's where you wonder, like, what are the forces at play, really? (laughs) 
who benefits from maybe not not having any signaling, no change? I don't know. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head there that as champions of an EIP, at a, the onus is on us to educate and to convince people why they need this. But with ProgPow in particular, we were just contributing a solution to a problem that there, there obviously was and asks for contributions had already been put out in the space. And this was our contribution. To be honest, we just got frustrated that a lot of people who didn't know what they were doing were proposing solutions. Mm. Um, and I think that is the same for any developer. You know, at some point you just get frustrated that someone is talking shit and you want to be like, you know what, here's how you should properly do it. But the onus is on the champions to actually go and, well, champion their proposal, go out and communicate. But not everyone wants to do that because it is interpreted incorrectly. Mm. And so because ProgPow was associated with mining, uh, it gave an easy opportunity for the opponents, in this case, the ASIC manufacturers, to hyperfixate on my background, who I was, what I was currently working on. Oh, is course scientific somehow incentivized mm. to push or lobby this? You ask anyone at Core Scientific what ProgPow is their eyes will just like glaze over. They'll be like, that's that thing Christy was doing in her spare time, right? Um, there's there's just a lot of skepticism. And naturally, we need healthy skepticism in our community. But at some point, it turns to toxic skepticism. And yeah, it culminated in just so much drama that ultimately, I was unmotivated to continue. The core devs were unmotivated to keep having this damn discussion every week, mm -hmm. everyone was unmotivated. And at that point, you just want to walk away. But ProgPal, you know, now it's a meme, it cannot be killed because <laughs> to this date, it keeps being brought up every now and then. And it still makes its way into calls. I, I stepped down as champion, I think, in officially in 2020, um, okay. right before I got COVID, actually. So I, I was hands off, said, nope, not doing this anymore. Uh, Greg, Greg Colvin actually stepped up to champion it. And to this date, it's still there in accepted status. And every now and then it still gets brought up as, you know, as either a meme about governance or as a meme about controversial EIPs or heaven forbid, when we're talking about, you know, the merge or about phasing out proof of work, ProgPow is still there as a bartering tool about, well, we can give this to miners in order wow. to make, uh, make the merge easier. So it still has not been completely killed off yet. And it's been adopted by a few altcoins. Um, so Ravencoin has their modified version, which they call Core Pal, because their mascot is a raven. So mm. Core Core. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Z, uh, Z coin, which recently rebranded to Firo, has adopted it as well. There is uh, a small privacy coin called Veil, which has adopted it. So a lot of altcoins are adopting it. And one of the design parameters around ProgPow is the ability to have programmable almost dials, which allow you to create your unique flavor of a proof-of-work algorithm optimized to a specific GPU type. So all of these coins can actually benefit from the same security an ASIC would provide by tuning to a different GPU card, which is kind of cool. Hmm. So just to, to recap, though, what the difference was, because that I never really got. So it's just the first time I actually heard, like I knew it had something to do with ASICs, something to do with GPUs. But what you were saying is 
ASICs come along and you know, optimize in a very narrow way to do something. But in the case of Ethereum, most miners are using GPUs, but that are not fully used. And the option here was either ASICs are going to come along or potentially you could increase the usefulness of the GPU that is already being used. And your argument was since miners already have these GPUs, it would like keep that mining community in, in a way healthy. Whereas if you only do ASICs, then those are hard to get and could be almost like front run in the real world with like big entities purchasing a lot of them. Correct. And also a majority of the infrastructure for mining at the time, it was just GPUs. And the white paper specifically called out ASICs as a plague. And the GPUs themselves had been purchased knowing that this was going to be a GPU friendly chain. Mm. So miners felt that there was a social contract that they had entered into and they didn't want that to be broken. Now, the white paper has been modified now. Uh, It sits on ethereum.org to remove a lot of those nuances. But the original white paper at the time was a source of almost truth as well as controversy. And you mean the white paper for Ethereum client development? Correct. Got it. And specifically, even uh, I think there was a part in the yellow paper that talked about hash and the design rationale of the algorithm. Mm. So there was almost a social contract between between miners and the community. Miners were going to provide this hash rate. It was going to be on GPUs. Even the, on the website at the time, it specifically called out, do not mine with ASICs. You know, ASICs can't exist on hash. If you see an ASIC, it's probably a scam, which was hilarious. I remember hearing, and I don't know if this is like later, maybe it's a different thing, but I thought that there was sort of talk of creating some way that like the proof of work would always change slightly so that ASICs wouldn't work well. Is is that a separate proposal that came later? Or what, what was that? That was inside of ProgPow because it has a random math element. So um, one of the things of ProgPow, it's, it uses KISS99 for its randomization algorithm. And every X amount of blocks, and you can define what it is. So in the case of Ethereum, it was uh, every minute the algorithm changes. So that an ASIC that gets created is forced to have some form of programmability. And that makes it a little bit less like an ASIC, right? It moves it further on towards the GPU. The best way to think about it is the GPU is the ASIC. ASIC just means it's the optimal hardware for that task. And so GPUs, GPUs are ASICs in and of themselves. When you buy the little core individually, it's called a GPU ASIC. And all we've done is said, okay, well, if GPUs are the ASIC, we're going to go and design an algorithm that targets that as the ASIC. So what happened to the, like, you sort of mentioned that there were a batch of ASICs that were released right around this oh, yeah. time. So so given the state of Ethereum as it was, without ProgPow being included, did ASICs just arrive on the market and then have they been taking over shares, share of the of the network? Like, where, where are we at? Yeah, so what happened was the E3s for a time were close to 30% of the network and they were silently mining. Um, So no one knew where they were, who they belonged to. What did happen was COVID and the supply chain and the hit to our supply chain. So it was kind of quite an opportune moment. You had at the time three participants in the ecosystem who were in the business of building Ethereum ASICs. You had Bitmain, who had just built their E3 and was looking to optimize that. And specifically, the E3 was built because they had an oversupply of memory. 
Because remember, I mentioned that at the time I was in China, we were going around and purchasing memory. Bitmain was doing the same thing. They were one of our competitors. So they were also hoarding and stocking up on all of this uh, GDDR5 memory and DDR4 memory and DDR3 memory. And they had lots of excess surplus. And so they used a lot of their old DDR3 uh, RAM to actually build out these ASICs. Because if you've got spare components, what are you going to do? Just go sell them? No, turn it into a machine. So that was why the E3 started to exist. And then research had been continued on other Ethereum ASICs, but then Bitmain was having some internal politics. Entering Lindsay. Lindsay's CEO was the former CTO of Canon. Uh, which is another large Bitcoin and altcoin ASIC manufacturer. She left to go and build an Ethereum ASIC, and they were in the research stage. And what they proposed was to do this uh, fantastic, heavy-duty, massive kind of die connected to a lot of small memory chips. And it would have um, outperformed any GPU on the market by a factor of 20 to 30x, but it had incredibly high power consumption. which they weren't transparent about. And they never made it to market or mass distribution. So there was that issue as well. And then you had InnoSilicon. So InnoSilicon has the Fmaster and a few other ASICs, and they're the only competitor still in the Ethereum ASIC game today um, alongside Bitmain. And they uh, were in the process of building and researching and innovating because their main business is actually in producing MemoryFi which is utilized in GPU cards. So they already have a lot of the innovation and the IP and the knowledge necessary to compete. But all of this discussion about ProgPow had everyone skittish, combined with discussions about, well, we're going to be transitioning to proof of stake. So the reason we never upgraded to ProgPow was ultimately because, well, proof of stake's right around the corner. I kid you not, it was said in March, it's going to be deployed in July this year. July 2020 was hilarious. (laughs) So it was always a case of we don't need it because we're going to get the merge soon. ASIC manufacturers don't want to go and invest and do any research or development. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, the world stopped. And everyone stopped doing what they were doing and just sat in their homes. And this is why there's such a constraint on supply even to this day. Mm. So it was a time and place thing, a very opportune time. Yeah. And, you know, now maybe we'll get proof of stake and the merge this year. And eventually those GPUs will be able to, you know, transition off into other altcoins and ASICs will just be stripped for parts. And the only part good in most of the Ethereum ASICs is the memory. Huh. What do you think the miners themselves are going to do? Like, do you think that they'll fork over to something like what do you have any sense for their behavior you think they're going to sell no miners might threaten to fork but honestly a lot of miners do not have the capabilities to self-organize fork a chain and then maintain that chain so at the end of the day value follows where the dApps and development are and that will always be the ethereum main chain And so miners might fork initially, but it won't fizzle into anything. And for it to have value, it has to be listed on exchanges and maintained on exchanges. And there has to be development that happens. So you would need a lot of miners to self-organize into that. And the mining pools themselves have said no. 
Oh, wow. And will follow the longest chain. What about something like ETC, though? Like, that's a chain that use, that has a very similar thing. The switch would be easy. Have people thought of going there? The problem with ETC is partly in culture. They lobbied hard against ProPal, so they've already left a sour taste in miners' mouths. The second part of that is they're pursuing a proof-of-work change called Ketchak, which favors ASICs. So miners wouldn't flock to that chain because number one, um, it has to be profitable, but number two, it, it's right back where they started, going to an ASIC-favored chain where you know their days are numbered. As an investor, you don't really want to invest a ton of capital into something that you know only has a two to three month lifespan. That's the best way I can kind of explain mining. You yeah. want to make a two to three year investment, not a, uh, a few months investment. So it's really, really difficult for miners. So a few of them will flock to altcoins. Um, there's Ravencoin, there's uh, Firo, there's a few others. But a majority of the hardware in China, especially now in the current conditions, is just going to sell or liquidate. Wow. Or it will be repurposed into the HPC space, which again is going to put pressure on the OEMs because now they can't continue to sell out their orders at their current price point. What's HPC? What does that stand for? Uh, High performance computing. So anything to do with cloud computing, rendering, artificial intelligence. Would you say like, what? what's this? I, I mean, I had a question as you were telling the story of like these mining communities, but what, what is the mining community like? And how are they feeling about this? Like, are they, are they sad? Is there anger? Is there threats? What's going on? They're, they're diverse. So at the end of the day, the, the mining community is just as colorful and vibrant as the DAP community, which is, it's a bunch of really diverse, opinionated people that have come together in love of mining. And there's natural skepticism over when the merge will happen and if it ever will happen. Mm. And that is fair skepticism because we've been told that it will happen since 2018. (laughs) Um, So that's pretty normal. But there's also, you know, the the prog-pow debate kind of made it clear what position miners are in. And EIP 1559 has kind of reinforced that. So a lot of miners feel they aren't actually heard and that their voices aren't heard. And unfortunately, that is a reality of a chain that wants to move to proof of stake. It is a a whole community is being cut out. Um, There's nothing that we can do about that. What we can do is encourage them to come join the staking community and run validators instead and sort of transform. And a lot of the miners will actually do that. And so pools have started to build staking businesses and have started to prepare for that transition. Um, And the larger infrastructure and the larger, more professional firms have actually diversified into that. But your individual hobbyist or smaller miner, definitely there's that bittersweet anger. And I think a lot of people, you know, when when the dust is settled and when the merges happen, A lot of those miners will still be users of the Ethereum ecosystem. Ethereum is more than just mining. It is is development. It is uh, use. It is stores of value. It's it's this vibrant melting pot of communities and ideas and uh, applications now. And so the other that they've worked so hard to create has a purpose and has a use. And I think a lot of them will transition over into the NFT space and participating in that way, transitioning into the next step. Even 
a lot of miners are starting to get into DeFi through way of MEV, uh, minor extractable value. And that is kind of the onboarding into the decentralized finance space for miners. Wow. Totally. I didn't think about that, but it very much is. Wow. It's like onboarding them into this more financial ways of playing, you know, in, in blockchain. Oh, that's so cool. And to be honest, Flashbots has done something phenomenal in that they've managed to self-organize the mining community around a drive, a common drive and vision for profit. And they've shown them a different way of utilizing Ethereum outside of just mining. And Hmm. it's great. And yeah, Flashbots right now is doing a fantastic job for the Ethereum ecosystem. And it will continue to exist uh, when we go into the merge as well. So MEV is still a, will still be a component of F2.0. And I have no doubt that a Mm. lot of the people that have been onboarded into MEV through Flashbots will continue to maintain some sort of presence in F2.0. Cool. I mean, this has been such a journey from your start through these, you know, mining and the communities and the companies and then these controversies. What I want to hear about now is what are you working on today? What are you interested in? What's what's your focus these days? You said you stepped away from being the ProgPal champion in early 2020. What have you been up to? So I took a uh, bit of a sabbatical, very short one from the cryptocurrency ecosystem to go learn how mobile phones were manufactured and actually go launch a mobile phone. So that was cool. I did that. <laughs> Check that. Uh, I'm off my bucket list. Um, and then I'm back in the in the crypto space and uh, doing a lot of advisory and consultancy on the expert witness side. So actually uh, being an expert witness for legal cases and also working on something called Symbol, which is a blockchain protocol that's seeking to kind of disrupt markets. So every every cryptocurrency seeks to do to disrupt something, right? Bitcoin's disrupting payment infrastructure. Ethereum's disrupting cloud computing, Arweave disrupts cloud storage, and Helium disrupts internet connectivity, but Symbol's all about disrupting markets. Mm. And um, it's a learning experience for me because Symbol is a proof-of-stake coin. They use a modified proof-of-stake called Proof-of-Stake Plus, which aims to reward uh, users of a chain preferentially to hoarders of stake cool it's really cool it's been a learning experience i've been working on that a little bit in uh in stealth mode and um just mainly getting back into the uh into the ecosystem still definitely a big part of my advisory is still in the mining space but you know i'm very curious about protocol design in and of itself and proof of work just happens to be the largest but i think that tide is going to tip in a few years Uh, with Ethereum moving to proof of stake. Mm. Is there some ZK in this symbol project? The reason I ask is this is this is a bit how we've crossed paths. I know that you've started to like be a little bit more in the ZK space. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So in 2019 and 2020, I was actually doing a lot of consultancy around optimizing the matrix multiplication of uh, zero knowledge uh, ZK Starks on FPGAs. And I put all of that aside while I went to run off and learn about uh, mobiles. Um, <laughs> and then finally with uh, Symbol, one of the things we're actually exploring is zero-knowledge proofs and ZK rollups. you know, in order to ensure that our chain can support all of these different markets. 
And so the last three weeks, it's been nothing but research on the current state of ZK rollups and zero-knowledge proofs and ZK Starks and understanding um, the various implementations, be it Zcash or Ethereum and all of the innovation that's happening there. Are you focused more on Starks or Snarks? Starks. Starks. Oh, interesting. on Starks. Okay. I, cool. I am a Stark maximalist. Um, you can <laughs> blame Eli for that. <laughs> so here's, here's the thing, right? If you're going to use zero-knowledge proofs, it feels like you should go for your trustless environment and not have any of that toxic waste. And while I understand that Snarks are kind of where all of the uh, – both innovation as well as development is at the end of the day, when you're looking forward, Starks are the superior technology there. We're just, most of the development hasn't been focused on that path. From my perspective, it seems, it seems like if we're architecting this from the start, we should go the Stark path because that is going to be the successor in five to 10 years out. Hmm. But it's it's all still in the the research and the architecture phase, um, and there could be a nice way to eventually transition. But yes, I'm personally I'm a bit of a stark maximalist because trustless <laughs> trustless environments for the win. Nice, I think the Starkware crew might might enjoy hearing that. Um, <laughs> so I have one last question or or thought I want to explore with you, which is like after all of this journey. And now working more in the ZK side of things, like, did you feel burned, burned out or annoyed by all of this stuff? Because <laughs> like, it sounds rough. Goodness. The, fact, the fact that you yourself got kind of held up and like you were attacked. So like, yeah, how did you sort of go through that, survive it? Maybe if you have any advice to people. Uh, goodness, yes. And the advice should not be don't try, right? <laughs> That's not good advice. <laughs> yeah, that is not good advice. Definitely, I got burnt out. The burnout was twofold. One, it was that there was such pressure on revealing the identities of deaf and elves that I wasn't comfortable mm. with that because, uh, as I mentioned, you know, having pseudonymity is an important part of my own ethics and morals. And allowing people to have their private lives is incredibly important. And who cares who you are in crypto? I mean, we're all here because some dude called Satoshi Nakamoto decided to drum out his thoughts on a piece of paper. Like, mm. we we are born of anonymous identities. Um, so that was a big part of the burnout. And then the politics. The best advice I can probably give to my, you know, my younger self is just keep focusing on the technology. Ignore what people say about you. Ignore what people say about your character or the company you keep. Just ignore all of it. Because at the end of the day, as much as we don't like it, blockchain is a technocracy and we are all here for the tech and that's what we need to focus mm. on. If your opponents can't have a logical technical debate with you, then you've already won that argument and you just need to keep that in your back pocket and keep uh, telling yourself that. EIPs are political. Not all of them are, but ones that affect, you know, anything to do with fees or profits or the monetary policy will always be political, just like it is in the real world. And it can be incredibly draining, but just keep focusing on the technology and keep articulating and standing your, your ground. Um, and that's, that's all that is, is needed. And finally have a good group of friends <laughs> that you can vent to. <laughs> <laughs> Christy, I want to say, 
Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey with myself and the listeners. Very nice to meet you and get to know you a little better. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. And I want to say thank you to the podcast producer, Andre. Thank you to the podcast editor, Henrik. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.